Hello and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast. My name is Ryan and I'm your host. Before we get into it, I really wish to thank you for checking us out and giving us a listen. Obviously, if you are here and you're having difficulties with problem gambling, perhaps pre-recovery or you feel that you're at risk or just at a really low ebb, then please, please feel free to reach out. Trust me, there are plenty of people on your side, including I, along with my co-hosts Chris, Kelly and Kish. There are also many support groups available, including Gamcare and Gamblers Anonymous, among many, many others. We are all one big community, and so anyone who reaches out automatically becomes part of that family. There really is just so much support out there, so please don't suffer in silence. We're in it together. Keep the faith. Let's crack on with the pod. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the All Bets Are Off podcast. Gambling among minors is currently at record levels and I'm sure that many of our listeners will recall research from late last year that claimed 55,000 children in the UK are gambling addicts and that there are many more at risk. Today's programme will be looking at these issues in a lot more detail as I, along with Chris and Kish and two very special guests talk through the research and chat about what needs to be done to save our children. With that in mind, today's show has been billed as the Protecting Our Future Generations episode. Uh, We've now been joined by Professor Samantha Thomas, Professor of Public Health at Deking University, and Matt Zarb cousin who runs the Clean Up Gambling campaign. I guess the first thing to do is to put into perspective just how much of an issue gambling among minors is. The 2019 Young People Gambling Report suggests that gambling is more common among young people than drinking, smoking, or taking drugs, and yet, in reality, it's still not a subject children will be being well-versed on in the classroom. Around 55,000 sorry, 11 to 16 year olds are classified as problem gamblers in Great Britain. Another 140,000 are expected to suffer from significant gambling harm. And then there are further 1.2 million that are non-problem gamblers. I guess the first question is, what's causing this rise? So I think in terms of what we're seeing in terms of young people in gambling is really, I think, the thing that we're most interested in, which is how gambling is becoming more normalized for them. So we talk about this a lot, that probably when we were growing up, you know, we didn't have gambling apps on our mobile phones. We didn't have that prolific gambling uh, advertising during our sporting events. And one of the things I think that we've seen with young people is this increasing idea that gambling is just an everyday part part of your life. That is something that everyone does. Um, it's an accepted, uh, socially accepted activity. Um, and I think what that means is that a, for a lot of young people, gambling is just as appealing to them as other risk-taking behaviours such as alcohol or smoking. Smoking for us was the big thing that we engaged in. Gambling now, because of that normalisation, is becoming an increasingly accepted activity for young people. And the question I guess that we all are wondering is why is that? What is going on in our communities and in our society that's leading young people to become more and more interested and engaged in gambling? I think the thing that's changed in the last 10 years, since two, particularly since 2007, when advertising was permitted, uh, is that certainly I think gambling companies have really occupied that space that was vacated, I think, once by uh, cigarettes, once by alcohol, and has become kind of inextricably linked to 
consuming Premier League sport, Premier League football, live sports. And I think the, there's a generation now growing up thinking that you have to put a bet on to enjoy a football match. That's part of the experience. It's part of supporting your team. And there's even evidence of like things like pester power with children saying to their parents, like, have you put a bet on yet? Have you, why, why haven't you, you know, this, this, is, uh, this is easy money and all this kind of stuff. So it's really changed the culture. Yeah, thanks for that, guys. Um, I think that's really interesting what you've just said there, Matt, as well, around the football, because we've obviously had the Premier League come back this week. And um, I was watching the Watford v Leicester game, it was, and it just amazed me. And actually, without the crowds there, I've noticed it even more. Uh, Around the side of that pitch, the whole game, there was some other adverts, of course there was, but there were four betting companies advertising. And one of them, and I can't remember what they're called, but they're the ones who sponsor um, Watford. And... uh, they were advertising in two different languages as well. So, you know, they weren't just trying to hit the UK market, but they were trying to hit um, an Asian market, I believe it was as well. And the bit that really got me were the three words they were using, which were fun, fast and fair. And that fair bit, I I just couldn't believe it. And I think that really shows the normalisation part. You know, they're saying this is fun and this is fair. Well, you know, for me, that doesn't seem right. Um, But on this as well, obviously, the players had the um, advertising on their shirts all the way through the game as well. And uh, just the one bit, I just wanted to pick up on this part, actually, because I'm very interested, is the um, whistle-to-whistle advertising ban that we have now. So they can't show the adverts in between um, the um, half-time interval and that kind of stuff. However, you know, the kids are still seeing the advertising the whole way through the game anyway. So what kind of difference does that make, if any? You know, is it just lip service, really, from uh, from the industry, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So I guess it's interesting. One of the reasons why I first started um, researching in gambling was because I took my two kids to a football match here in Australia. They were probably seven and four at the time. And um, about halfway through the match, my eldest, who was probably about seven, turned to my little one and said, oh, look, St Kilda is, you know, $3.60 to win. And I turned to my, I remember very clearly turning to my husband at the time and saying, this is tobacco all over again. And we started then what was really the first piece of research that had ever been done to look at the amount of gambling advertising in sport. But then the more we looked at that, the more we started to hear anecdotally from parents that this was starting to have an impact on their kids, that kids were starting to talk about the football, not just in terms of their favourite players, but the odds. So when we first started talking to kids, one of the things that we used to ask them is, what do you think gambling's about? Like, what does this mean to you? And just as you said, there were things that they started to talk about which showed us that gambling would be really appealing to kids. So, for example, they used to talk about the fact that gambling was easy, that it was fun, that it was something that you could do to support your football team. But I guess increasingly what we've seen over the years, so it's been, what, 12 years or so that we've had gambling advertising in sport here in Australia, um, is that the more advertising we've seen, the more we start to see kids talk about gambling in that advertising language. So no longer do kids talk about the odds, they talk about the deals that the companies offer. So I don't know if you have this in the UK, but we have it here in Australia. So those um, ads which basically say, um, if your team kicks the first goal but goes on to lose the match, we'll give you your money back up to $50 or we'll give you a bonus bet. And so what we found recently with kids is that they're not talking about the odds, they're saying, yeah, I'd probably have a bet 
that on this because the company would give me a good deal and I can't lose because if the thing that I bet on isn't working out, the company will give me my money back. That to us is kind of concerning from a normalization perspective because it's also creating this idea for kids that gambling has no risk attached to it. And I think anyone who has experienced um, harm from gambling will tell you that there is an extreme amount of risk that's attached to gambling. And so it's exactly the message that we don't want kids to have, that this is a risk-free, easy, fun activity. Yeah, thanks for that, Samantha. And yeah, something that I saw the other day as well, actually, was, um, and in fact, Liverpool didn't beat Everton, which was a shame because I'm a Liverpool supporter, but there was an offer for um, some anybody joining this particular company, um, 71, 70 to 1 were the odds for Liverpool, Liverpool to beat Everton. Now, Liverpool are the top of the league, and obviously Everton aren't. And so, you know, that is an... Um, that is something which could have you know, very easily happened. But the point was it was 70 to 1, but what would happen was um, you would win a free bet. So essentially all you were really going to win back was your 70 pence, or actually just slightly less. Um, it, and it was just a massive hook. So a child seeing that would think, oh, wow, Liverpool are top of the league. They're probably going to beat Everton. This is, like you said, there are, there's no risk attached to this because actually what I'm going to get is I'm going to get this money back. But they weren't really going to get the money back because all they were going to get was the opportunity to keep betting. Um, and then that's when it becomes really, really dangerous because it's just hooking them in, dragging them in with what seems like a risk-free offer, pulling them in. And then, you know, obviously that's when somebody like me, um, that's when the downward spiral starts. And I think for kids... Um you know, this is really important. I mean, these are classic nudge strategies for for marketing. Um, They're not unusual. We see them across lots and lots of different products. But with gambling, we have this very adult product that um, kids are really being caught in the crossfire with, you know, that's trying to appeal to an adult market and kids are being exposed to this. So sometimes we hear this language about they're targeting kids. Actually, what we're interested in is not really whether they're targeting them or not. It's how much kids are exposed to these messages. And we know, as you said before, Chris, that there are so many channels and mechanisms which um, the companies use to really create that mass saturation of advertising all the way throughout football matches. So not just in the commercial break advertising, but the shirt sponsorship, those hoardings around the ground. Um, Even here, you know, basketball is a very popular sport here. We have the logo plastered all over the court. Kids are seeing it on social media. They're watching videos on YouTube and ads are popping up. So in a way, kids can't avoid it. And that's one of the reasons why we think restrictions and regulations are so important to stop kids from being exposed to that mass saturation for this really addictive adult product. Yeah, I think as well as that, there's like new products that have come come to market in the last few years, like loot boxes and skins and things that really um, were seen as kind of innocent activities or video games and you know it's just I think the gambling element has really infiltrated that space and uh, I think the fact that if you're growing up and you're playing FIFA Ultimate Team and you're used to buying packs and there's a less than 100 to 1 chance that you're going to get a good player in that pack and you keep and the idea of repetitive purchasing for something that you don't know you're going to get that's a conditioning and as, as Samantha says, like whether or not it's targeting or deliberate, it's still exposure. And that exposure over time means that when that young person gets to an age where they're able to gamble, it just seems like a normal activity. And that's the, that's the real worry is that 
this is not a normal activity. This is not a normal leisure product and it's not a normal consumer product. And the reason it's not a normal consumer product is because it's not like going to the shops and buying something. It's not a win-win contract where you exchange money and then you get the item and then everyone, you know, the, the shopkeeper is happy because they've got the, the money and you're happy because you've got the item. It's a win-lose contract. It's you against the person providing the service. There's a real antagonism between the individual and the person who's providing the platform for, for gambling. Uh, it's not like anything else. And it's a harmful consumption sector. And I think to, to, to allow it to be sold or to be portrayed as a normal activity, I mean, it's just, you know, I think as, as Professor Jim Orford always used to say, uh, uh, you don't have to tell people to, to, to shop at Asda responsibly. You know, it's, it, it's obviously a, uh, there's obviously something uh, quite addictive about it. And in order for these companies to make profit, people have to lose. And that's the one part of the equation that we never really put front and centre in, in association with this product. I just wanted to jump in there because something I was talking to one of our previous guests about last night, in fact, Matt Blank, because I was having a chat with him. And one of the things that he said when he, he used to work within the um, industry itself in betting shops and he once spoke to somebody in there and asked you know what are we selling these people and the um the person he spoke to said oh what we're selling is we're selling a dream um so are we saying that um that this is obviously having a massive impact in terms of uh, children's relationship with money uh, i mean loot boxes for example are, are somewhat of a an, an oddity to me as i've never been a gamer myself however i do recall going to uh, an ex-girlfriend's house uh, on a few occasions and um and and they were a family struggling to make ends meet with a, with a young child and her partner didn't have a job and and would just play fifa near on every day and what alarmed me was that he would rather spend the little money that they did have on these virtual packs uh, rather than put food um, on the table and um, given that we we now live in a world which uh, gaming is such a a big part of so many children's lives especially teenagers do we risk that sort of example I've just given um, or perhaps is, is is this already becoming more of a regular problem I think it has become a more, more of a regular problem I think it's I think look there's the, the last gambling commission data I think it was a uh, in the, in the last round of the health surveys, I think it was 55,000 people, young people between 11 and 16, had their gambling addiction. So, look, I think um, the, thing that, as I think the thing that's changed is the loot boxes. I think that's the thing that's really shaken up the landscape. But then, of course, there are other platforms that children are able to gamble on. We're the only country in the world that actually allows children to gamble legally. So, you've got like, I think this, I think there's, there was a problem, to be honest, with the, with the 2005 Gambling Act. Because what it did was it, it grouped together amusement arcades and adult gaming centers. And, uh, and of course, like, so it started to regulate family entertainment centers, as we would call amusement arcades, as gambling, as a form of gambling. And then immediately you get a kind of blurring of the lines. So you have like crane grabby machines uh, and penny pushers that are regulated in the same way as slot machines in adult gaming centers and it's just one of them is from my perspective one of them is gambling one of them isn't but if you have them in the same premises you start to blur the lines you start to think hold on this is like if you're a young person going to a family entertainment center uh going to an amusement arcade down the seafront or whatever or wherever you might live and you start playing on the grabby machine and you start and you see the slot machines and you think this is the same thing 
So that kind of conditioning, I think, is another is another element. But we're we're only we're only starting now to see the consequences of real wall to wall advertising during live sporting events in Britain. Uh, I think that those consequences are starting to come through. But the video game industry is making huge amounts of money. They're releasing fewer and fewer games. It's not just FIFA. It's Grand Theft Auto. It's all of these things in the Grand Theft Auto online version they have a casino now where you can gamble you can obviously uh deposit real money and then gamble it and obviously you can't withdraw the money but still it's still like gambling to kind of advance your avatar it's the same principle so i mean look that that for me are the things that have changed the the landscape the most but i think in this country we are in a kind of unique position in that we do let children gamble yeah, and I think what's very interesting talking about the games is when I was a youngster, we bought a game, we paid a certain amount of money for a game, and then we tried to complete a game. And if you completed a game, then you might try and complete it a little bit faster. Um, well, that doesn't seem how to be how games are designed nowadays. Games are designed to not be completed, to just grow bigger and bigger and bigger, maybe get more and more and more and more money. Um, and talking of Grand Theft Auto, like you did there, now that's you know that is an, a, a game for eighteen-year-olds essentially, but. I know many, many children or, you know, people who are younger than 18 play that game. Um, and I've seen the casino and, you know, my, my son and his friends play that game. And it isn't just the fact that you can put money in and play in the casino, which obviously you do, but it actually glamorizes that whole casino environment to people who are playing that game as well. So, you know, you walk in there and people are wearing nice clothes and all that kind of stuff. And it's got apartments. So he's, he bought himself an apartment above the casino in that game. So even though he was saying to me, I'm not playing in the casino, dad, but actually he is still living in that kind of environment and you know it's really really weird I just find that a very very strange difference that has come about since I was young the fact you play a game you complete a game you try and then complete it faster or you move on to another game whereas now there is no end it's just pay more and more and more money and get bigger and bigger and bigger actually it's quite funny because um, I've had you know a similar experience to to yourself um, when I was growing up, it was it was all about completing the game, and there wasn't really much else. You might have had some side missions, but nothing really involved more money. Once you paid for a game, that that was it. Um, and what's sort of crazy to me is, um, well, put in put it into perspective of sort of uh, disadvantaged families and and children growing up with them um, less money than other people. Um, so instead of just non-uniform day, we're talking about. Um, sort of children feeling the impact of or feeling anxiety from not you know from not being able to afford certain things on games um instead of just on on non uniform day it could be all the time to put some statistics um onto what, what has already been said um in terms of football advertising in the 2010 season only four premier league football sides had a betting shirt sponsor um in the 2020 season it's 10 so in other words, from going from 20% of uh, Premier League sides in 2010, it's gone up to 50%. Um, and in terms of video games, in 2018, the video game sector was worth £2.6 billion. And that was said to be growing um, more than 16 times faster than the wider UK economy since 2010. Um, and just like gambling, uh, this sort of gaming can be a few buttons away um, at any time. 
um, as a lot of it is now on mobile phones. And um, in terms of spending on mobile phones, it is said that children are spending at least £270 million on in-game purchases on an annual basis. And it is said that children are spending between £500 to £600 per year on in-game content on mobiles. And that's actually not too far from what the average gambler spends in net value. I, I think um, one of the problems is that the way we define gambling in the law as well. So in the, in the Gambling Act, uh, gambling is defined as a wager for something of money or money's worth. And therefore, loot boxes, because they're not money or money's worth, because you can't sell them, you can't sell the contents of them, sorry. Um, then they're not regulated as gambling, even though it is a wager for something of value. So that's what it should be changed to. The definition of gambling should be changed. It should be adapted to something of value. And the reason for that, I think, more than anything, is in, so in the States at the moment, there's a massive problem with social casino. Social casino, because they've only just recently regulated, started legalized online gambling in the States. And social casino has been growing and growing in parallel with that kind of push for um, liberalization of online gambling and what people do is they deposit money into the social casino they play with these fake chips digital chips but they can never withdraw the money it's just about getting like as many chips as you can and like trying to compete with other people and like from from my perspective that's from out from a gambler's perspective like and i'm sure you guys might may agree uh that's kind of bizarre because it's like you can't win but then you think hold on a minute no one can win gambling no one can win playing slots long term anyway so there aren't many differences between the two things it both of the things kind of pull you in they're engaging uh it's addictive content uh and actually you know it becomes irrational that's what the addiction is it's irrational and you think these people putting all this money into this social casino well, it seems pretty irrational to me, but actually gambling on slots is, is irrational anyway, whether you can get the money out or not, because you always lose in the long term. No, I do agree. I do agree in terms of what uh, Matt was saying. There. I mean, when, when he says, obviously, you deposit the money and you, you can't get it out in, in these sort of games. And, you know, it, that's how that's how gambling gambling typically uh, typically works anyway. And we've seen that here with many uh, UK operators. Um so going back to what we were saying earlier on, um, uh, Professor Samantha, inviting you back into the conversation here. Um, so is there an argument to be had that the industry are systematically targeting minors, perhaps even grooming them? I know we, we have touched upon it, but uh, is it simply a case that they may be seen as, as collateral damage or um, the mass marketing and advertising that they are being exposed to on a, on a daily basis? So um, I guess for me, it's not about whether they're targeting them or not. And it's very hard to show intent when we think about this. And that's why we always talk about exposure, because what we're really interested in and the thing that we know that impacts kids the most is exposure to the marketing for these products. And we know that the marketing is changing and we know that it's normalizing gambling as an activity for kids. And although we talk a lot about loot boxes, the area where we see that it's most normalized is in 
in relation to sport. So we know that in Australia and in the UK, that over 75% of kids that we study in our research, and we've done research across both countries now, think that gambling is a normal part of sport. And that's something that we have to change because gambling has never really been as normal a part of a, a sport as it is now. But also don't forget that the vast majority of people do not gamble on sport. And yet when we talk to kids, one of the things that the advertising has done is it's created what we call an exaggerated perception of normalization. So when we talk to kids and we say, how many people do you think gamble on sports? They say, oh, everyone. Most people do. And in actual fact, we know that that's not true. Actually, only quite a small percentage of people will regularly gamble on sports. So that's something that we kind of used to see with tobacco, for example, or in alcohol, where there was a perception amongst kids that this was something that everyone was doing. And so when you have that perception that it's something that every, everyone is doing, you want to do it as well or you feel it's accepted or expected for you to do that as well. So when we ask kids why they think that, why they think everyone's gambling, um, they say, well, because the ads show everyone gambling. And again, when we look at marketing, these are the things that actually start to change kids' relationship with gambling, particularly in relation to sport. Um, we've done a lot of work here in Australia with quite little kids, like as young as eight. And one of the things that we do first is we say to them, how many gambling companies can you name? So gambling is quite a complicated um, concept for, for little kids. But when we ask them if they can name a, a brand or a gambling company, kids will quite easily be able to rattle off at least one, but sometimes two or three or four gambling companies. Now, here in Australia, we have nowhere near as many gambling companies as you have in the UK. So you have many more companies, like hundreds more companies than we do. In Australia, uh, the government, I think, did a really good thing and it banned, it prohibited online casinos, which we're really grateful for um, because we see the issues that you have in the UK with those. But even when we're out in the community and I say to a kid, um, can you name some gambling companies? They'll say, oh yeah. And they'll quite happily, you know, rattle off three or four different names. And one of the things that we always talk to parents about is if you're not sure whether your kid knows about gambling or not, ask them if they can name a gambling company. There is no way that an eight-year-old should know the name of a gambling company. This is a very, very adult product and we wouldn't expect them to be able to name one. The second thing we ask them is to test whether this brand is starting to get into their brains, if you like, is we say, okay, thinking about the name of the gambling company that you just named, can you tell me what colour that company is? And quite often they'll be able to say, I'll just use a hypothetical, they'll be able to say, oh, Ladbrokes, that's red. And what that's showing is the power of the brand or the presence of the brand in the kid's mind. So again, this isn't about targeting. This is just about kids being regularly exposed to the marketing of these products. And of course, this is just a branding exercise. What brands want you to do is when you turn 18 and decide to download the app onto your phone, that you're downloading their app. So when we talk about kids and their awareness, the next thing we ask them is whether they can identify the particular types of appeal strategies that the companies can use. So if you think about some of the big gambling companies in the UK, they all have a specific type of kind of feel to them, right? So some of the companies we have here, their marketing is really funny. It's very humorous. We know that that's a strategy that really appeals to kids. So when we talk to kids about the companies and the types of advertising strategies that they use, quite often they'll say, oh, I know this company because their ads are really funny. Like I remember 
remember and they'll be able to describe the plot line of the ad literally word for word. It's incredible. It's almost like they've remembered it. They remember the taglines. And again, that's not because gambling is something that's of great interest to them. It's just that they see this over and over and over again on the TV. And so what we're starting to see with kids and particularly kids that are very, very engaged or highly engaged or invested in sport is that they know all these companies. They know the difference between the companies. They're able to tell you the difference between what offers some companies have and the other companies have. They are particularly persuaded by celebrity. So they're able to tell you if there's been a celebrity actor in the ad. Um, And for us, that's a real concern because we know for kids, when you have a celebrity promoting the product, that creates trust. So kids will quite often say, I know this brand or I know this product or I I know I want to gamble because my favorite athlete is promoting it. So that's him telling me that this is an okay thing to do and he's probably doing it as well. So when you get the combination of all of those different things, it's kind of irrelevant whether they're targeting or not because kids are seeing this everywhere. And that's why so many of us that have been working in this area for so long now argue that there need to be very, very strong restrictions, not just on commercial break advertising, not just advertising before 9pm, but complete advertising bans across all different forms of advertising. If we talk to kids, for example, about sponsorship, they have a totally different relationship with that. So, for example, kids know from about the age of 12 what sponsorship is is designed to do. So they know that this brand is somehow giving money to their football team, for example. But when we ask kids what they think about that, they'll say, oh, I'm not sure that the name of that company should be on the shirts of the players, but probably by having it there, it does some good for the football club. So kids actually feel quite positive towards sponsorship, whereas they feel quite negative here in Australia now towards the ads. They don't like them. They understand that this isn't something that kids should be seeing. And when we ask kids what should be done about this, kids are quite clear that these should be banned from time periods or at all from kids being exposed to them. So I guess when you look at it, kind of comprehensively or holistically like that, you can see over time this pattern that's starting to be built up. And again, it's all about the exposure. 100%. I mean, it, we had uh, we had James Grimes on uh, not too long ago from the uh, from the Big Step. And, you know, he was uh, even as an adult, you know, he's saying that he trusted um, he trusted, uh, I think it was a, a Spurs fan. And, uh, you know, he, he, he they had mansion bet at the time. And he was saying, you know, even as an adult, he would go to that product. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, children would see that on the front of shirts and uh, be inclined to believe, you know, this would be a, a safe product for them to use. And, and, and they go-to product as you know as, as as they get of age um also something that i wanted to speak about as well is is uh, esports um esports is a is is is, is a, a massively growing market and um you know there's a, a large amount of betting companies attaching themselves to to esports competitions um i mean i don't have the figures here in front of me but i do recall reading an article relatively recently it is a, a multi-million pound industry now is that also um something that we we do need to be careful of i mean we've got so many different forms and, and mediums many things that we've already discussed in terms of uh, i mean we haven't really touched upon social media yet but is it is is esports also something that we really need to be concerned about in in, in terms of gambling companies being uh, attached to uh, attached to that 
So I think um, anywhere we've got marketing for these products, we need to be concerned about it. So kids um, will drift to different things that they're interested in, you know, sport, esports, video games. Um, and I guess the thing that we're interested in is how those products are promoted within those platforms. So one of the things that we know now um, is that here in Australia, we had a, a ban of gambling advertising and live sport, but it only goes up until 8.30 at night. So that whistle to whistle ban that you were talking about before is actually probably likely to be pretty ineffective based on our research here in Australia because of all of those other forms of promotions that kids see around the ground. But also what we're finding now is that companies are definitely switching or promoting their products more through social media platforms. So um, I guess the biggest channel that we're starting to see those ads is through YouTube. So a lot of kids will access um, sporting highlights videos, for example, on YouTube. And again, there are no age restrictions on those if you haven't got an account with YouTube. And quite often, gambling ads will pop up before kids will see a highlights reel for a football match or, you know, there's compilation packages where it's like the top 10 goals of the, you know, of the year or whatever. So again, that's kind of problematic for parents too, because as parents, we can't see that advertising. When we're sat watching a game of football with the kids on a Saturday afternoon, we can see what they're seeing. When they're locked into their phones or their iPads or their laptops, it's much more difficult for us to see that advertising. And so that would be the same with esports, you know, probably much more appealing to kids or to young people. Don't forget that the WHO, the World Health Organization, defines youth or young people up to the age of 25. So when we're talking about young people, we're actually talking about um, young people, and young, young men, for example, young women who are right at that age where they start to get really interested in gambling. So that 18 to 25-year-old period. Um, and things like e-sports definitely we know are starting to become progressively more interesting to, to young people in that age range. Esports is going to be absolutely massive as well. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if you saw, I think it was at the O2. They packed out the O2 arena in London um, with people watching it live. And obviously, given the lockdown and the, the cancellation of sports fixtures, um, company, betting companies have, have been offering uh, a market on people playing FIFA against each other and people playing Call of Duty against each other. Uh, or CSGO or whatever it is and like this is going to be huge I think that this could actually it could even be even bigger than um, than actual live sport eventually I think that's that's on that trajectory and for people of my generation I'm I turned 30 this year that's that's just like I can't possibly conceive of that I, I, I've grown up like absolutely loving the Premier League and loving f football and everything. And the idea of like digital esports and FIFA actually being more popular than that, it's just, it doesn't make sense. But to this generation growing up now, it, is, it makes perfect sense. And the idea of becoming a professional esports player and the idea of, um, you know, that person who won several million winning that competition, that became kind of mainstream news. All of this stuff, all of these conditions are there now, I think, for this thing to really be massive. And with it will come a whole, uh, whole range of new betting opportunities that will be exploited by, by the betting companies, absolutely. 
Yeah, that's. Um, I think you're spot on there, Matt. Um, so, you know, when I was a kid, so I'm 38 now, and uh, when I was a kid, I was the same as you, you know, life sport, it's amazing. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a footballer or a rugby player. And when I was growing up, rugby union became professional, you know, these were things I wanted to do. So I spent time outside and I had fun doing that stuff. Now, I talked to my son about going out and doing some of those things. He's like, well, now I'm playing on my, I'm playing on my PS4. And it's like, well, you know, that isn't necessarily very good for your health. He's like, yeah, but you can make money. This is a job when I'm older, Dad, you know. And, and it's very hard to um, to say that you're wrong because when I was young, my dad would have said, you know, I know a lot of people don't become professional footballers, son, but get out there and get some exercise. And if you do, you do, great. And if you don't, go and enjoy it. But I don't want to say to him, um, you're right, son, you might become a professional esports player. You probably won't, but just sit on your bed all day and get fat while you're playing. It's a different kind of message, and that's 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 the trouble for me. And it, it, the thing is, I can't argue, and it's the same with things like YouTube. You know, he watched YouTube a lot, and he surprised me last night, actually. He told me quite a lot of interesting facts that he'd learned from watching YouTube. I didn't realise he was watching good stuff, but at the end of telling me these facts about megalodons and things like this, he, was, um, he then started telling me about an advert that he'd seen over and over again, and it happened to be a coral advert, and I didn't know he was seeing that. So back to what Professor Samantha was saying there. Um, you don't know what your kids are seeing when they're watching YouTube. Um, I had that issue a number of weeks ago where he was doing a piece of schoolwork around um, the Blitz in the UK during the war. And um, the video, before the video, it was a coral ad again. Oh my God, sorry, coral. But, you know, they keep seeming to appear on here. And um, it... It's the brand thing, so he'll remember that in his head. He doesn't like seeing them at the moment. See, that's the other interesting thing. They annoy him. Personally, that's the way he is. Other kids may be different. He's like, it annoys me. It gets in the way of what I want to watch. At the same time, it's still going in his head and he's seeing that brand. So when he does get older and thinks, do you know what? I might want to gamble. Maybe it will be Coral. It's the first one he goes to because of that reason. I guess that's where government regulation is so important because it's the job of government to protect kids from this stuff. You know, these are big companies. I was really interested, Chris, when you said in the beginning of, of the show that um, you'd seen football ads and lots of and gambling ads in lots of different languages. And one of the things that we find here in Australia is that a lot of the gambling ads that you have in the UK on um, Premier League shirts, for example, kids pick up here. So I've had parents send me um, self-portraits that kids have drawn in class of their fam favourite English football team with the name of a gambling company plastered across their chest with themselves as an eight-year-old in a self-portrait. Um, and we don't have those brands here, but the kids are seeing them through their love of the Premier League. So this really is a global industry now, and we have to treat it as such. And what happens in the UK is affecting kids here in Australia as well. So I think if we come back to what do we do about this and how do we protect kids, government has to start to step up. It is their responsibility to stop kids from being exposed to these ads as much as they possibly can. We know that we were able to do it with tobacco and we did it really successfully. And we know that once we got all of those ads, particularly out of sport, that kids started to not be so interested in, in smoking. There are lots of other things that went on at the same time, but regulation of advertising was part of the strategy and a really important part of the strategy to decrease kids taking up smoking in the first place. So we know we have that historical template from tobacco and we know that if we apply that to gambling, it'll probably do a pretty good job at starting to denormalize these products for kids. 
I think one of the things that surprises me quite often about the UK is just how little regulation there are around these products and the marketing for these products and how much in the UK you rely on self-regulation. So the gambling industry volunteering to do things like the whistle to whistle ban. At some point, we know, well, we know self-regulation is completely ineffective. There is no evidence to show that it has any impact at all on reducing gambling related harm or, you know, junk food use or anything else that we talk about in public health. But in the UK, you seem to have this reliance on it. And at some point, the government has to actually stand up and say, this is enough. We've tried this now for a very, very long period of time. It's not working. Now it's time for us to step in and set the rules. Um, and I think that's what we'll see with the next step, particularly with the, the revision of the Gambling Act in the UK. Thank you for that, Samantha. Matt, that's something that I wanted to speak to you about. Obviously, there are a number of different things here that I wanted to touch upon, but uh, what would you like to see? Um, I guess this is a, an open discussion to everyone. What would people like to see in this uh, soon-to-be-had review? I'd like to see a complete, fundamental, comprehensive review of, of the entire Act. Um, I think, as Samantha said, we're not we're relying a lot on self-regulation there's a lot of areas that just simply um, have outgrown the current legislation so stakes and prizes online for example the, the 2005 gambling act gave the minister the power to set the stakes on machines through secondary legislation we saw obviously last year the minister reduced the maximum stake from 100 pounds down to two pounds on fixed odds betting terminals that was because that's that power is, is contained within the legislation. There's no similar powers related to online gambling. We've only started regulating online gambling since 2014. Uh, since then, we've licensed another 900, over 900 operators, more operators since 2014. Um, all of these operators have the capacity or the propensity to offer products, addictive products like slots, at unlimited stakes. There is nothing that limits the maximum stake. There's nothing that limits the amount you can deposit uh, into a gambling account. And all of these, I think all of these things need to be looked at properly, particularly the stakes. There needs to be uh, a, new, a new category uh, that applies to online gambling products. That means that the stakes are regulated in the same way as machines uh, and that there is a direct line of accountability with government. And I think... I would like to see that that as a priority, to be honest. I think the, there needs to be a statutory levy paid to an independent, ideally a public body, uh, to commission research, education and treatment. And there needs to be, I think, uh, I think we need to move towards an advertising ban. I, I find it difficult to, to justify any kind of advertising, particularly given it means that Children are exposed to it to the extent that, that Professor Samantha has uh, identified or highlighted. Uh, and I think that the regulator itself, the Gambling Commission, is not fit for purpose. And it's not fit for purpose because it's trying to do too many things. It was designed to license and regulate the industry and to ensure they're adhering to the license conditions and upholding the objectives in the Act, which is to ensure gambling's fair and open, not associated with crime, not harming the young and vulnerable. But what it's ended up doing is um, also having to, I'll give it credit, it, it's doing this because it, it has to, no one else is doing it, act as a pseudo kind of commissioner for research and treatment and coordinate that 
which is not its job. It doesn't make sense for the Gambling Commission to be uh, responsible for the national strategy to reduce gambling harms when those harms arise from the lack of regulation it itself is responsible for. That is a conflict of interest. The second thing that it's trying to do that it shouldn't be doing is acting as an ombudsman. And it's, it, unfortunately, there are no channels, uh, no formal channels for consumers to get redress. It does try, people do go to the Gambling Commission and they say, we can't really get your money back. You know, even if there had been a serious breach of the license conditions, we can't really get your money back. But, you know, if they're, if they're found to be in breach of their license, then we can sanction them and we can get them to, you know, either a regulatory settlement or something like that. Um, but there is no formal channels to get redress. So it's not, a, it's not an ombudsman, but it's trying to occupy that space, which I think is unhelpful. I think there needs to be a separate ombudsman. Um, so if people have a problem, they can go and, and get and, and, and resolve it properly and, and formally. And there was a, a case that came out yesterday, I don't know if you saw it, of a guy who uh, won £108,000 from Betway and had to spend 10 grand of his own money uh, on legal fees just to get that money, just to be able to withdraw it. I mean, this is a crazy situation. Every other sector pretty much has an ombudsman and gambling needs one as well. 100% uh, agree with that. Um, obviously, we had uh, Tony Parenti and, and Alex Macy on the podcast a, a few weeks ago, and they were uh, pretty damning towards the uh, the industry. And, you know, I'm not saying that this was a direct quote from that episode itself, but they were certainly suggesting that the uh, Gambling Commission were, were allowing operators to act with impunity. I wanted to go back to the, um, the educational side of things. You know, I think... Um, is it a concern for you that many of the higher funded education programs surrounding gambling here in the UK appear so closely attached to industry bodies and, and governance that are seemingly against any form of change or progressive thought process? Um, I think for me, I always think back to what are, what do we do in tobacco and what was acceptable in, in tobacco. And one of the things that we did when we created them, not me personally, but people did when they created the, the big global frameworks on tobacco control, was they started to look at really how important it was for the tobacco industry to not have a seat at the research, education or treatment table or, or around the policy making table as well. So what we really saw with tobacco control were really strict measures which were aimed to restrict the demand or influence or reduce the demand for cigarettes, but also the supply of cigarettes. So if we think about that in terms of gambling, we know that there are things that we can do which start to denormalise these products and restrict the demand for them. Um, I guess the first one would be restrictions on advertising. So I completely agree with Matt. Now, there may be some instances in which gambling companies can market, say, for example, on price. Um, but really, everything else should be restricted. Um, we should have a, as many restrictions as we possibly can, I think, to stop children from being exposed to this during their regular everyday activities, including the viewing of sport. Um, and that includes gambling advertising, promotions. So that would include things like inducements and VIP schemes, um, but also sponsorship as well. I guess the second thing is around the products themselves. So really starting to think about how we um, 
uh, create regulation which minimises the harm that those products can cause. Again, that is urgently, urgently needed in the UK. And the recent all-party parliamentary group um, had some really terrific recommendations about the types of things we can do to make gambling products a lot less risky and harmful for people. Um, the third thing, which comes to your point, is around public education. So we know that public education, including education for children, is really, really important. It's an important part of reducing and preventing harm. But we also know from tobacco that that education has to be evidence-based. It has to be based on the best um, possible independent evidence. It also has to be developed independently of industry. So industry should not have a role in the creation or providing um, education around, in this case, gambling. Um, and so I think we do have a bit of a concern that so much education is um, supported or sponsored or funded in some way by the gambling industry. Now, that's not to say that the intent of the education isn't good, but we know from tobacco that it, it, we have the most um, success or chance of having effective um, campaigns when we have the industry removed from the creation and delivery of those campaigns. And I guess the last thing, which is really important, is making sure that we have independent treatment services for those who need it. So we need to do as much as we possibly can to prevent gambling harm. And one of the things in that prevention mix is also treatment. So we can't have the two separate from each other. We need to be working together between the prevention people and the treatment people to make sure that we do as, as much as we possibly can to reduce harm. If anyone wants to check it out, Samantha did a brilliant um, session in, in Cardiff a couple of years ago where uh, she, she basically showed children, uh, I think they were 14 or 15, basically how gambling corporations, uh, what their tactics are like, how they, how they go about their business, how they you know, attract new customers, what their tactics are, what, what the kind of products they offer, um, the, and then assessing the impact of advertising on, on that group, on that demographic. Um, and it was a very iterative, kind of interactive, uh, incredibly compelling and, uh, and interesting day. And that's really what, what gambling education should be about. It should be about explaining to children like get it, making them streetwise to like these kind of what these what these tactics of gambling companies are. Uh, it shouldn't be about telling them that they need to gamble responsibly uh, and locating the blame for gambling harm in them as individuals. If that ever were to come about, it should be about you know educating them about the the, the companies and their behaviour and their approach and what kind of products they offer and the fact that these products are addictive and you know most of their profits come from people who are experiencing gambling problems i think all of the you know the the facts basically so yes and and look i think the i think treatment in this country for gambling addiction is in, it, it's it's incredibly inadequate and the nhs long term plan is obviously committed to 15 more clinics we'll hear a bit more about that in september and Hopefully, we'll get to a situation where those clinics can be funded independently. People can be triaged eventually by their GP. The idea of going to the, your GP if you have a gambling addiction will hopefully become normalised. People will then be referred to the clinics. The NHS will have the data. We'll be able to assess properly the extent of the problem. At the moment, there's a lot of uh, obfuscation about you know, the true numbers, and I don't think there's enough people that know where to go for treatment. And 
you know, we're only, I think Gamble Aware last year, I think only about 2,000 people completed treatment. And if the YouGov survey that was out recently is right, there's 1.4 million addicts. So we're, we're miles away from where we need to be. Yeah, some really, really interesting stuff touched on by you both there. And uh, I think it's on YouTube, actually, Samantha, um, that piece that you did, that education piece. And I watched it a little while ago, and uh, I really enjoyed it, actually. It got, really got me thinking. It kind of got me into this kind of stuff we're doing now, to be honest. Um, if we ever do enough one, I'd love to come along if that's possible. So especially if it's in Australia, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it's really, really interesting. And I think it's so right that actually you need to let children know what the harm could be, what the tactics are, because then they can make that informed choice. I mean, of course, you need to tell them as well, do you know what? The gambling industry allows you to set limits and all this kind of stuff. But actually, and this is why I think it's very important that kind of people with experience go in and maybe do some of that training, because I can say, yeah, the gambling industry does that. However, if you're somebody like me, you're not going to be able to set those limits because this is my addiction. This is how it kind of portrayed itself for me. And actually, this is what the industry did to lure me in whether on purpose or not you know i'm not here to say that it's been really interesting to to listen to you all today's episode has truly been invaluable to me on an individual level with insights on gambling related research and campaigning both of which i do as sort of a hobby now um, i'm hoping that you'll indulge me in a question each um, firstly matt when i first realized like hold on gambling is a huge huge issue and uh, particularly in terms of harm to health I somehow got the opportunity to have a face-to-face -face with an advisor to quite a prominent MP um, who was quite known for, for their stance on gambling. And one of the things that was discussed at that point was how gambling falls under the remit of the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, or DCMS for short. Um, and uh, I was asked quite out of the blue, should it not be Department of Health and Social Care? And, you know, I spent probably about two seconds thinking about it and I was like, Yes, absolutely. Um, and just thinking, why would it not be? Um, and the other question is for you, Samantha. Something that I've um, something that I've learned at sort of um, sort of what feels like day one of university is that tobacco advertising control is highly effective, but it took a long time to get there, and there were a lot of hurdles. You know, for instance, due to um, you know the influence of industry um so who on the world or the world health organization on tobacco advertising they say to be effective bans must be complete and apply to all marketing categories otherwise the industry merely redirects resources to non-regulated marketing channels so i was wondering if you could share with our listeners a little bit more about what sort of advertising ban would be effective and whether industry would just try to maneuver around any bans anyway in the case of gambling uh yeah it should be um it should be anywhere except dcms because unfortunately uh dcms is a department that uh in every other thing that it's responsible for wants to it wants to uh foster economic growth and to put gambling there it it, it doesn't fit because what you need to, we need to do is control and regulate gambling and regulate supply and regulate consumption. We shouldn't be encouraging growth because if you encourage growth in a sector that derives most of its profits from people who experience harm, then you increase the quantity of harm. So I think it's about the, uh, the culture at 
the Department of Culture. That's the problem. It's the fact that this, this is a culture that is uh, about just completely driving, dri driving growth in all the sectors that it oversees. And it's only recently, apparently, that uh, uh, the Gambling Commission has been mandated by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport to not grow the sector. It was under the remit and responsibility of the Gambling Commission until pretty recently. I remember one of the former executive directors, Matthew Hill, saying that aim to permit, the aim to permit gambling licenses in the Gambling Act they perceived as a growth duty, a duty to grow the sector. A duty to grow the sector, meaning to approve licenses and also to increase the profits of the sector, which is just absolutely ridiculous position for any regulator to be in, to be, to be instructed by the government to oversee the growth and expansion of the sector that it's supposed to be regulating. It's in complete, again, a complete conflict of interest that's built into the system. So there's lots of reasons why we are where we are. Um, I think moving, moving uh, gambling out of DCMS, perhaps into the Department of Health, where they take a much more uh, considered public health approach to regulating these types of things. It's less about, obviously, economic growth. It's more about protecting the population. I think philosophically, that's much more in line with where we need to be. So I think your question was around the banning of, of ads and do we need a, an approach or a tobacco solution to this? Um, and will industry be able to manoeuvre around any regulations that we have? Um, so I think there's two responses to that. First of all, we have to do as much as we possibly can, knowing the influence that advertising has on young people, to restrict and reduce that advertising as much as possible. And because of the range of different platforms that we have now and which companies can advertise and market their products, we are lending ourselves or moving towards that comprehensive ban <clears throat> because if we don't do that, we will see the things like we have now, like in the whistle-to-whistle -whistle ban, where you might be able to get rid of commercial break advertising, but advertising pops up in lots of other different ways within that, that forum or within that medium. So I think moving towards that comprehensive ban is really, really important. Will industry try and find ways of getting around that, you know, including direct messaging people and so on maybe but that's the job of government and the regulator um, to keep on top of that to make sure that they continue to map and monitor what industry does and then come up with solutions and responses to the new tactics that they see that's the job of government um, so I think if we can start with this idea that we must as much as possible restrict and reduce children's exposure to advertising just like we had in tobacco then that's a really important place to start. The other thing I would say about kids, and particularly around that forum that we had in, in Wales, is kids are pretty savvy. If you give them the right information, if you give them critical analysis skills, critical marketing skills, and you know you don't have, just have to give that in terms of gambling, you can give it in terms of look what happened in tobacco, look what happens in alcohol, look what happens in junk food. All of these are basic marketing tactics. So when you look at this, these are the things that the companies are trying to do to make 
make you remember their brand and to sell you their product. That is the job of advertising. Once you give kids those skills, then not only do they take them up for themselves, but they also share them with other people. So one of the things that we've been doing at the moment is with those, I've been doing some education with, with people in the UK at the moment and showing them those safer gambling ads that have been running at the moment. And one of the easiest things you can say to kids when those ads pop up is how many times do you see or hear the company's name mentioned? And that's a great way of showing kids that this isn't really just about them giving a responsibility message or a safer gambling message. It's also about promoting their brand. So there are lots of tips and tricks you can give kids to start to help them to understand the mechanisms that advertisers use to promote their products. So I think when you take that approach, plus in Wales, we had this great panel of lived experience and we have people like the Children's Commissioner talking to kids about how they elevate their voice in responding to this issue and then we created a forum for kids in which we said all right what would you say to sporting organizations what would you say to the government what would you say to your teachers about what we need to do about this issue then kids also become empowered over this health issue they feel like they're engaged in it and they feel like they have a say we don't do that enough with kids we do a lot of talking at them but we don't do much to engage them in the conversation and that's the really really important part of independent education moving forward yeah definitely that um, that engagement part is so important because kids do have a great understanding like you say and they do pick up on things and and I think us as adults we we without doing that we assume we know what is going on in their minds and we assume that we know what to tell them well actually we need to hear it from them I love what you said there about the adverts and the responsible gambling adverts or actually ask the kids how many times the the brand was mentioned because that's that's so so interesting and then because I, I was saying all along you know there was one i watched the paddy power one during the uh the uh lockdown where they obviously had the gambling ban it was supposed to be um, responsible gambling adverts there was a paddy power one when all they did was turned over cards that said paddy power on the back i mean you know how many times can you get paddy power into one advert it was ridiculous but but that's why you need the regulator isn't it and that, that's the other thing because unless you have a regulator who's separate then you're going to get the companies coming together and saying, yeah, well, okay, we will do that. But then they've still got to collaborate together to get a message out. And that's why the regulator is so important because you need to have some kind of, you know, I'm well into collaboration, don't get me wrong. I think it's really important, but there has to be a healthy um, amount of friction there, I think, uh, when you've got this kind of issue going on. So that regulator needs to be there to say, you know, yeah, you are going to do these responses and gambling adverts, but what you've done there is totally unacceptable. This is why, this is what we expect. Whereas at the moment, it's more like, oh, well, no, actually, we said we would put out um, some responsible gambling ads and that's what we've done. Um, and that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right. But getting that um, getting that feedback from the kids like you've done there, Samantha, is amazing because having that kind of, I think, weight behind the argument and taking that to a regulator and saying, look, this is what the future generation think. If you've then got a proper independent regulator, they can use that as really good, really good information to, to go back to the industry and say, look, this is why we're saying it. This is why it needs to change. And because they're regulating it, the industry can't come back and say, oh, yeah, we understand that will make a change. They actually have to. 
Kids have a really, really powerful voice in this. So when we were advocating for restrictions around gambling, advertising and sport here in Australia, we immediately went out and spoke to kids and we did huge numbers of studies with kids. We went and stood outside football stadiums and said, oh, what do you think about this and so on. And you know whose voices it was on whose narratives it was that were read out by politicians in the parliament in Australia? It was the kids' voices in our research. So it was their comments and opinions that were read out by politicians in the parliament. They are so, so influential and so powerful. When you hear what kids are seeing through their own eyes, then suddenly as adults, you realize, well, how can we not do something about this? And I don't think it should be up to parents to constantly have to try and sweep this under up, you know, and educate kids. Um, we did a study where we had the industry here saying, well, parents need to talk to their kids about gambling and there needs to be education. We actually then did a study to talk to parents about whether they felt that they could. And it turned out that parents were doing their best to talk to their kids about gambling, but the advertising was so seductive that they could not compete with the kids' favourite football player standing up promoting gambling. And so that's where regulation becomes so very, very important. It's there, it's designed to create a level playing field for everyone, but most importantly, to protect the community. And at the moment, I think in the UK, that's not happening. And we can use use kids' voices more effectively to start to argue for that change. Unfortunately, uh, that's pretty much all we've got time for this week, but it's been an absolute pleasure in having uh, both uh, Professor Samantha Thomas and Matt Zalb cousins with us today. Uh, lastly, uh, I just wanted to find out, uh, uh, Professor Samantha Thomas, what, uh, what are you up to at the moment and uh, what can we expect to see from you in the future in terms of research? Um, well, we're continuing to do our research with kids. Um, we're looking quite closely at how kids see gambling advertising via social media platforms. So that's a big portfolio of work that we've got coming forward. Um, and as always, um, talking to kids and getting them engaged so that we learn from them about what else we should be doing around gambling um, in the community. Um, we've also got a great project at the moment where we're talking to uh, experts by experience in the UK. Um, we think this is really, really important because for far too long, experts by experience have been excluded from having a really meaningful and powerful um, inclusion in research and education and treatment and, and policy in particular in the UK. So really starting to understand what um, experts by experience think are the priorities in the UK um, is a, a new piece of work that we're really excited upon. And I guess the last thing we're doing, which I um, am particularly passionate about, is starting to um, really understand women and young women and, and gambling. Um, we know with tobacco that advertising started with men and started by targeting men and increasingly shifted to women as a new market for them. We're starting and definitely seeing the same in, in gambling. So really starting to talk to women, understand their unique um, experiences, but for, from our perspective, also understanding how that marketing is pitching and, and trying to appeal to them is really important. So Lots of um, collaborative work at the moment between Australia and the UK, which we're really excited about moving forward. Sounds good. And uh, Matt, obviously you're, um, you're keeping busy with your Clean Up Gambling campaign. Yeah, so uh, if anyone's interested in Clean Up Gambling, uh, we're a campaign, obviously we're uh, trying to get as comprehensive a review as possible. So the government did commit to a gambling review uh, in the Queen's speech at the start of the year, which is what sets the legislative program for the year for the parliamentary term obviously we've had covid and 
all of the uh, all of the problems and issues that have arisen from that. So that's been delayed, but we're expecting them to announce the terms of reference in the autumn. And what we're trying to do is encourage uh, the government to, you know, through the media and through lobbying MPs and through creating political pressure uh, to make that review as comprehensive as possible. If you're interested, please go to cleanupgambling.com and sign up. And there's a tool on there that you can use to uh, send a letter to your MP within uh, less than a minute. It's very easy. And it, it helps because we've had... Um, several hundred letters go out to MPs, uh, which means that the, the government will, will be made aware that, that uh, there, is, there is definitely a call for this among the public. And as well as that, uh, obviously, I'm a co-founder of Gamban. Gamban is a blocking software, self-exclusion support. And if you are addicted to gambling, please have a look at Gamban because, um, well, obviously, I'm trying to I'm trying my best to uh, increase the adoption of this particular product, proving pretty difficult uh, with the intransigence of certain sections of the treatment infrastructure in this country. But uh, uh, obviously, we're we're quite we're quite proud of what we've managed to do. And if you are addicted to gambling and you want to block gambling sites, Gamban blocks forty thousand sites globally and millions of domains and subdomains. Brilliant. Thanks for, for that, guys. A really uh, incredibly insightful podcast. Um, uh, for our listeners, uh, please stick around uh, because after a very short interlude, Chris, Kish and I will be having a quick debrief regarding the episode. And as normal, there will be our Hero of the Episode segment. Thank you. Welcome back to the All Bets Are Off podcast. Uh, we're now just going to have a little debrief uh, following the conversation that we've had um, with Professor Samantha Thomas um, from the Deakin University in Australia and also Matt Zalbcousin who runs the Clean Up Gambling campaign. Um, firstly, Kish, um, how do you think that episode went and um, what particular pieces did you find extremely interesting? Yeah, um, thanks for that question, Ryan. Um yeah, I really enjoyed having this um, episode. I think it's. I think this has been one of the most uh, insightful episodes so far in terms of science and uh, what's actually going on behind the scene. Um, and that's not to discredit any of the previous episodes, but yeah, it's it's been just fantastic to finally hear from uh, from in person to hear from Professor Samantha Thomas and Mark Zabtres. And I've I've been following them for a while um, while I've been campaigning, and they've been definitely been a source of inspiration. Um, as as for your question, um, yeah, I think um, it's really interesting to hear about how advertising and how that really affects kids. But more importantly, I guess, is how um, Professor Samantha's work has actually been able to um, use kids' voices that has been particularly effective in in the likes of Australia. And um, I guess some lessons learned from from what's what's happened elsewhere in the world um, and how that could be effective in the UK. Yeah, for me, listening to Professor Samantha was um, really, really insightful. You know, I really got a lot from that, uh, being a parent myself. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting to hear her take on advertising. It's not about the fact that we should be stopping advertising because we think it's being pushed down children's throats, for example, as a way to get them in. But just the fact that children remember stuff, children notice colours, children notice logos. Um, because it's so normalised, because it's out there all the time. Um, I found that incredible, actually. It's really, really, really interesting. Um, 
And for me, yeah, talking to children about what they know, what they understand as part of that education, um, it's really, really important. Let them know what the industry does. Let them have their own say in it. How do they feel? I think it's how we um, get kids ready to become adults. Um, and, you know, they need to understand this sector and, you know, that it can be dangerous for some. Um, and, yeah, wow, Matt, what an amazing um, what an amazing guy. The Clean Up Gambling campaign, fantastic. Um, I know he mentioned about the um, template to write a letter to your MP. I did that. Um, it's very, very straightforward. I really do suggest people get online and do that. It really does take less than a minute. It's all there, fully populated. Put your name in, put your address in. And then send it off to your MP. And I got a nice um, response back from mine. So, you know, I hope they take it seriously. Let's get this um, comprehensive review of this Gambling Act done and sorted. And, and, you know, it needs to be given the kind of time and effort that's really, really needed. We need, as we've discussed in the show, we need a regulator. It can't be self-regulating anymore. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous industry that some can have fun with. Of course, a lot of people... Do not have fun. A lot of people get to where us guys got. Not you, Kish, obviously, but your father. And you know, it can be a really, really, really dangerous um industry gambling. It can be a very, very dangerous thing to start. So let's make kids aware of that. And then if they decide to start, let's hope they can do so in a way that you know that they understand the problems that they may face in the future. And if they do start to use gambling as more than a leisure activity for themselves, then they need to know that that's okay and that they can find help very very quickly and to try not to go down that line further yeah absolutely yeah and i think there were some really really good tips for for parents in there um within the whole episode in terms of making sure uh, that you're aware of what your children do know um uh, about the uh, about the industry um and i think there was just some very s- subtle questions uh, that you can ask them um you, you know to, to 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 understand their knowledge and uh, their insight into the industry um Obviously, I think it doesn't need to be a much more of a, a, a shared responsibility. At the minute, I do think, as um, Professor Samantha alluded to, there's a lot, a lot of onus on parents. And I think this is really, really unfair, particularly in a world where it's so difficult to control, you know, what your children are doing. Um, you know, you can only put so many blockers in place, but they're always, you know, when they, when children go away from the home, for example, you know, they'll still, um, you still might be able to access other Wi-Fi and stuff like that, and, and all of a sudden they're going to be exposed to a whole different world. Um, and as things stand, um, you know, our children could be at risk of receiving a, a condensed version of what irresponsible gambling can lead to. And so I, I do think independence is super, super important uh, when it comes to education programs. Um, I, 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 sh- I strongly believe in that. And that's something uh, that perhaps needs looking at. Um that's all we've got time for this week. Looking at next week, we will be um, talking about gambling harm among the BAME population. Um, stick around for our hero of the episode segment and catch you in a bit. Thanks. Bye bye. This week's heroine of the episode is MP Tracy Crouch. Many in the gambling sphere will remember that she resigned as sports minister back in late 2018 in protest over the government's refusal to speed up plans to curb fixed odds betting terminals. This week Tracy has been diagnosed with breast cancer but fortunately she has picked it up early and so we're now hoping that this means she beats it as soon as possible. Of course we wish her well with her recovery and we echo her sentiments 
when she says that people should regularly check their bits and bobs and go and see their GP or call NHS 111 upon finding anything or seeing anything irregular.